Hello, and thank you for joining us here on the Seedfield Podcast from Antioch University. With every episode, we celebrate and share stories from those that embody the spirit of Antioch University and our founder, Horace Mann, as they win victories for humanity. Simon, who do we have on the show today? Today, we are lucky to be joined by Zoe Weil, the co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education. She is the author of seven books, including her latest, The World Becomes What We Teach, Educating a Generation of Solutionaries. Zoe is a pioneer in the field of humane education. For the last 30 years, she's led workshops, written articles, and spoken at universities and conferences across the United States. She has been invited to talk at TEDx six different times, and one of the recordings has been viewed over 130,000 times. And she designed the curriculum for the Institute for Humane Education's Master of Arts and Graduate Certificate Programs which are offered in partnership with Antioch University. So, welcome to the Seedfield Podcast. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's wonderful. And we are so happy that you, you chose to spend your time with us today. You run the Institute for Humane Education. Your core mission is to help teachers and change makers create a more just, humane and sustainable future by educating them about the interconnected issues of human rights, environmental sustainability, and animal protection, and building a society of solutionaries. This is a powerful mission. I want to circle back to this term, solutionary, but first, as one of the pioneers, can you tell us the story of human education? How did this noble idea come into the world? So it's actually been a term that's been around since the 19th century. And Henry Berg, who founded the first SPCA for animals, as well as the first child protective organizations, he and some others realized the importance of educating young people to be compassionate and to strive to make a difference for others. And what was interesting is that the term grew out of this combination of both child protection services and animal protection services. And so it was holistic in its origins. And then for many years, the term became most commonly associated with humane societies and SPCAs and really was focused on animals. And some of us in the late 1980s and early 1990s wanted to go back to its original meaning and to define humane education as education about the interconnected issues of social justice and sustainability and protecting other species. And so we have been going back to the roots and making humane education the comprehensive field of study 
that it is today that prepares people to understand these interconnections and to create a world in which all can thrive. That's such a beautiful mission. And I think relevant throughout history, but especially especially today, it seems urgent with everything that we are facing as a society and as a species. As I understand it, one of the major thrusts of humane education, as the Institute for Humane Education practices it, is preparing educators to educate their students humanely. And one of my questions is that there's, there are already so many standards and curricula, training programs, certification programs that teachers need to adhere to in every state in the country. And so my question is, what makes humane education different from education as commonly practiced today? So that's a great question. And it's really interesting that you mention that part of the mission is that education should itself be humane, because that was not the origin of this term. It really was a term that revolved around a field of study, as I was just describing. And just as a aside, a few years ago, a woman who was an educator and educational trainer and had been an educational administrator, she was just thinking about education and schooling in the United States and, and where we live in Maine and, and just thinking about how inhumane some of the practices were. And so she Googled humane education because she wanted to create education that was more humane. And then she found us and found what humane education also means, this field of study. But to to get to your question, so humane education can be perceived as something that is in addition to. And you were just talking about all those things that teachers have to add onto their already incredibly um, full plates. And so how can humane education not be perceived as yet another add-on, something more that teachers have to do? And the way that, that we perceive it as, is that humane education can infuse schools and infuse curricula so that regardless of what a teacher is required to teach, you know, whether they're a math teacher uh, of seventh graders or whether they are a high school history teacher, whatever it is that they were hired to teach, that these issues of social justice and sustainability and animal protection can actually be brought into the curriculum to enliven and enrich the curriculum so that students can learn about real world issues within whatever subjects they are required to study and that their teachers are required to teach. I love that. It sounds to me sort of like a matter of first principles rather than a new curriculum or it's something different. It's more the ground on which this is undertaken. Yes. Yeah, I just love how also you're, you're suggesting that it's a, it's a way for teachers to infuse, you know, these core issues, uh, environmental justice and sustainability into what they already have going on. It's so interesting learning more of the history of humane education. And I, w I wanted to ask, one of the big terms that you use at the Institute for Humane Education is this term, solutionary, and specifically training children to be 
and think as solutionaries. Can you tell us what this word solutionary means? And I, I'm hoping that you can kind of contrast it with another term, activist, that is in wider circulation today. Sure. Um, thank you for the question. And I also want to contrast it with the word problem solver, um, because solutionary is not synonymous with either of those words. So um, a solutionary is somebody who can identify unsustainable, inhumane, and unjust systems, and then devise solutions that do the most good and the least harm for everyone, for people, for animals, and for the environment. Solutionaries also strive to make personal choices that are aligned with more just and sustainable and humane systems themselves. So how is that different from being a problem solver? Well, you know, you can imagine an engineer has a problem and they solve it and they're a problem solver. But being a solutionary means really becoming a systems thinker who understands the interconnected systems that cause problems so that when they devise solutions, they do so in a way that doesn't produce unintended negative consequences toward any group. And problem solvers could easily do that, you know, produce um, a solution to some problem that has other negative impacts because they are not charged with making sure that they don't produce unintended negative consequences. That's so, such a nice way of, of framing it. I was hoping you could cast this into more specific terms. Like, is there an example of a problem where you've seen the problem-solving approach t go in one direction and where you see a solutionary approach? If you could give us a specific example of where a solutionary approach might yield real great benefits. Oh, sure. Okay. So this also gets to the difference between a solutionary and a humanitarian. So let's say you have a problem of litter on your roads. And so you think we have to solve this problem. And so you gather a group together to pick up the litter. This happens all the time, right? So litter is picked up from roads all the time and beaches all the time. Or let's say you have a problem of um, hunger in your community or houselessness in your community and you want to you know, help this problem. And so you do a food drive or you open a, a new homeless shelter. So the idea there, of course, is you're solving this problem. There are people who are hungry. You're providing food for them. But it's not a solutionary approach because you're not looking at the systems which are causing that problem to begin with. And so you're going to continue to have your uh, roads uh, full of litter year after year after year. And you're going to, going to continue to have people who are hungry or who don't have a house to live in year after year after year, unless you address the systemic causes of those problems. And you look at root and systemic solutions to them. So I think that that gives you an example of how those things are different. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, to get into the question of activism, you know, an activist can absolutely be a solutionary and a solutionary can also be an activist, but not all activism comes with the sort of solutionary mindset or the solutionary thinking process. So, you know, there's a, 
there's sort of a, a way in which we think of activism in our society. And it's certainly a way I thought of myself when I first started doing activism. Activism meant that I was standing on a street corner handing out leaflets or I was attending rallies and protests. That sort of felt to me like what it meant to be an activist. And, you know, it usually also meant that I was writing letters to my legislators or contacting them. Um, and I was trying to create change through those things. But I wasn't necessarily, once again, going through a solutionary process. And in a solutionary process, we identify a problem that we want to solve. So uh, activists, that might be similar. Um, the next step is we do a lot of research and investigation to understand the systemic and root causes of that problem. We reach out to all stakeholders. Sometimes activists don't do this. So activists will often show up at the protest with a sign, but that doesn't mean that they have made a concerted effort to reach out to the stakeholders, including those who are benefiting from the systems that are perpetuating the problem. And if we don't reach out to all of those who are impact, impacted by a problem, and by all of those, I don't mean every last living being, I mean different categories of people and those representing other species or the environment, and really understand that problems impacts on all these different communities. And if we don't simultaneously reach out to the beneficiaries, then we are not gonna be able to ultimately find the best strategies to create systemic change. And that's another piece of what it means to be a solutionary. So solutionary thinking is comprised of many forms of thinking, but primarily critical thinking, systems thinking, strategic thinking, and creative thinking. And you begin by cultivating your critical thinking capacities so that you're really a solid investigator. You really can uh, distinguish fact from opinion and information from disinformation or misinformation. And then again, you understand all of the systemic causes and the, the root causes that, that lead to the system, the creation of those systems. And when you've done that really thoroughly, then you can think strategically about where are their leverage points to create change that can be widely accepted and implemented. And that is a really important piece of being a solutionary because if you can't be strategic um, and, and find those good leverage points, the chances for being able to be successful with a solution go down. And then ultimately you have all of those pieces together, you think creatively and you can come up with a solution. And the last thing I'll say about that is it's not as if every solution has to be brand new. Nobody's ever thought of this solution before. It doesn't necessarily work like that at all. Sometimes you might, in the process of doing your investigation and research, find phenomenal solutions that simply haven't been successfully implemented. And your solutionary thinking might be that you are devising strategies to successfully implement others' solutions. I love that. One of the things that it makes me think of as a contrast with activism is the way that restorative justice tries to upend the entire system that has led to the committing of what we might think of as a crime 
And it tries not to think of just how do we punish somebody. It tries to think of how do we bring in all of the different people who this has affected and come to some kind of solution moving forward. So I love when you describe bringing in all of the different stakeholders, even those people who might be benefiting from the system as it is currently set up. And I love that you just brought up restorative justice, because I think of restorative justice as one of those fantastic solutionary solutions that is spreading. And in Maine, there was a high school that participated in our solutionary program, and the students decided to address the punitive disciplinary policy in their own school as the problem that they wanted to solve. And they, through their research, discovered schools in Oakland, California, that had implemented a restorative justice approach. You know, the disciplinary policy, the punitive disciplinary policy, the way it punished students was it, if a student, for example, was skipping school, the punishment was suspending them from school. You know, how that solved anything, I don't know. And um, one student at this school, when asked, you know, why are you taking this approach? Or, you know, why did you want to address this question? He said, I just want everyone to succeed. And the way they went about it was finding uh, another school that had implemented a restorative justice disciplinary policy. They brought that with their own modifications to their administration. And then the school changed their policy to adopt this approach. And, you know, imagine if that were to spread into every school. You know, it doesn't have to be that solutionary work is rocket science. It can be as simple as spreading great ideas and making them making them real all over the country and all over the world. Thank you so much, uh, Zoe uh, and Jasper. It's just been amazing listening to the two of you. It's just like, it's like listening to the kind of news that everyone should be listening to. Uh, I wanted to take us back to 2019. Uh, you know, the Institute, starting in 2019, the Institute for Humane Education has been partnering with Antioch University to offer advanced degrees at our New England campus. Uh, I wanted you to share with us why you are drawn to partnering with Antioch and uh, in a broader sense, why is it useful to accomplish your mission through partnerships? Thank you so much for the question. Well, partnering with Antioch was an absolute no-brainer, full stop. I mean, what, who better to partner with than the leader in progressive education? We are, are so excited to be working with Antioch. And it's when we think about whether or not to become a fully accredited graduate program ourselves or partner with an existing institution like Antioch, that also is a no-brainer. You know, working with a university that has been doing progressive education for so long and has been so successful at it, it's just a privilege to work with Antioch and with the New England campus for our master's degree and certificate program, and then with Antioch University for the brand new EDD program, which is the first doctorate in education with a specialization in humane education in the world, as far as we know. Thank you for explaining that, Zoe. Here at Antioch, we definitely try to be the leader in progressive education. and. At the same time, it really is these partnerships with like-minded people and organizations that allow us to embody that. I, I want to ask you, though, 
the last four years really have not been a, a banner time for progressive education in this country. And just last September, a handful of months ago, former President Trump called for patriotic education. That was his term. And he banned racial sensitivity training for federal contractors. And there's obviously a big movement afoot to ban the idea of racial sensitivity training across the whole country. Here at Antioch, we take a different view of what constitutes patriotism and education. But this is obviously a, a really live conversation in this country. So my question for you is, what do you see as the proper role of social justice in K-12 education? I think that's a really good question and a challenging question. People come to this question of what should be taught in schools from very different perspectives. And I have tried very hard to ensure that the humane education approach is welcomed readily by virtually everybody. And the way that I articulate the fundamental values of humane education are generally embraced by everybody, no matter what their politics and their perspectives. So the first piece is the MOGO principle. MOGO is short for most good, which is short for most good, least harm. I wrote a book called Most Good, Least Harm, A Simple Principle for a Better World and Meaningful Life. And the concept of MOGO is that to the degree that we're able, each of us should strive to do the most good and the least harm to all people, to other species, and to the ecosystems that sustain all life. And I have asked thousands of people, young and old, whether they think that this is a good principle by which to live. And not once has somebody said, no, it's not a good principle by which to live. It does not matter what their politics are, what their religion is, um, what their particular backgrounds are. Basically, this principle is like putting the golden rule into practice. And in a globalized world, it's challenging to do the most good and the least harm to everybody because our choices impact others we will never see across the globe and ecosystems that we will never experience across the globe. The other piece comes down to the mission at the Institute for Humane Education, which is to educate people to create a world where all people, animals, and nature can thrive. And if you ask people, is that a good mission and one you can support, virtually everyone will say yes. So this is a long way of answering your question, where does social justice education fit? But I would say that if we can all agree that striving to do the most good and the least harm individually and societally and through the systems that that we create and perpetuate if we can all agree that that's a good principle by which to live and if we can all agree that we want to live in a world where people animals and nature can thrive then the question becomes 
what does education look like with those goals in mind? And with those goals in mind, education, it, there should be no fear of talking about how do we create more sustainable systems, more just systems, more equitable systems, more humane systems, because if we can create those, then we will be on our way to creating this world that we all agree on. Now, we are not going to all agree on the best solutions. We are going to disagree on many of them. However, if we come to this with this value and this principle in mind, and we come in good faith that this is what we're striving to do, then we bring this solutionary lens to that work and we educate young people to bring this solutionary lens. And, and the solutionary lens is the lens that says problems are solvable and we need to collaborate and learn from each other to solve them. If we bring that lens, we learn to think like solutionaries, then there should be no real controversy about whether this is acceptable to bring into schools or not, because we're doing this in good faith. We are not discounting different people's perspectives. We are saying, let's get to this ultimate goal. How can we do it? I love the way that you frame that as an earlier principle before the conflict, potential conflict over these these terms that become loaded and people start arguing over them. You're saying everybody can get behind an idea like doing more good. Right. Or, or the most good. Sorry. Right. And, you know, there are a lot of terms out there that people bristle at. And I get worried that we get attached to terminology and we don't take a step back and find our common values and then strive to achieve them. And instead, we just, you know, we argue and we debate and we, you know, we take sides. We take sides on things that on the deepest possible level, we may not be on differing sides. Now, I'm not saying this is across the board. You know, I mean, if somebody, you know, is a white nationalist that or an anti-Semite or, you know, homophobic, they're going to be on a on a clearly different side than than I am. Um but that's not the majority of people. And when we think about our public school system, we are serving the majority of people who want a world that is just and, and healthy and humane. Hi, this is Jasper. I'm going to jump in here for a second to let you know that the Seedfield podcast is produced by Antioch University. Let's make the world better together. Complete your bachelor's or your master's or study for a doctoral degree with us and join a community with a 160 year long commitment to social justice. Win one for humanity. Learn more at antioch.edu. So uh, I would love to just ask you to share with us how you think we could educate our kids, especially in what we see as uh, literally a new world order. Uh, you know, what are the challenges that you see post the pandemic and what are some of the opportunities that you see? Great question. So um, the pandemic has, has brought 
into very stark relief many of the inequities that plague education. And it's so distressing that there are you know, millions of children who've just sort of disappeared from school this past year. And I don't have the answers for how we help these kids and how we you know, bring them back into schools ready and able to move forward in some of the traditional ways. Because what this points out is those inequities. They're just in such stark relief right now. And there are many different systems that contribute to those inequities. There's our economic system and our political system and our voting system and our healthcare system and our city planning and infrastructure system. I mean, they're just system after system contribute to this. And, and one of the one of the biggest systems is the way we fund public education. You know, public education is supposed to be equal for for all children, and yet we fund public schools largely through property taxes. So if you live in a community where property taxes are collecting lots and lots of money for the schools, then there's lots of money for those kids. And if you live in a community where there's very little money coming in from property taxes, then you have kids who don't have as much money spent on them. And, and that's completely inequitable. That is, that is something we could solve quickly. If we said no more, you know, this is not how we're going to fund schools anymore. It's not going to be based on property taxes. So funding is is one of the pieces, but we know that it goes deeper than funding. And so while I don't have a solution to that piece of what has been revealed about inequitable education during the coronavirus. While I don't have a solution, I can tell you that the solutionary process is part of that solution. That we, if we bring the solutionary process to those problems, then we can make headway there. Yeah, I love how earlier on, uh, while we were, you know, before we press the record button, you're sharing with us uh, how teachers have become so innovative and how that's uh, where the human education comes into play, especially now is when uh, the work that you've been doing for years is really most needed. Yes, and, and it's been really interesting to see how some teachers have pivoted to, during COVID to make the curriculum more flexible around students' individual interests and passions. And um, there they are at home. What can they do to make their learning come alive for purpose in solving problems that they are experiencing or that that concern them? And, you know, we know teachers who are doing this. Their students are doing solutionary work. They're deeply engaged even though they're not in the classroom this year. And they're able to be a little bit more flexible because the system is not expecting the same thing this, this past year as it has expected in the past. And standardized tests have, have, been, um, have been stopped or postponed. And so teachers have been able to be more flexible and therefore to innovate and experiment. And if we see some of the ways in which 
those teachers and those students have come alive during this time in new ways of thinking about education and thinking about allowing education to really serve the individual needs of learners then let's when they when students are fully able to come back into the classroom let's take that learning right. and and spread it yeah that's so amazing we we love to end the seedfield podcast with something actionable that uh, our listeners can take away and apply to their lives and i feel like you just described that uh and i just i just wanted you to share with us briefly anything else that you feel that an individual you know from anywhere else in the world can do to contribute to a more peaceful world through their everyday actions so i would say um that anybody can become a solutionary and we have produced two guidebooks that are digital and they're free and they're on our website humaneeducation.org one is for teachers and it's called the solutionary guidebook and one is for everybody else students and change makers and and solutionaries in training and it's called how to be a solutionary and people can go on our website and they can download uh whichever guidebook is is appropriate for them and for most listeners it's probably going to be how to be a solutionary and they can read it and start practicing the process the solutionary process and boy if everybody does that just imagine the world we can create and if every teacher educates their students to be solutionaries just imagine the solutions that are going to unfold from those students that's beautiful and that's not just a world that we have to stretch our imaginations to to see it's one that is also being built uh, by your programs in collaboration with Antioch. So I was hoping as we're wrapping up our podcast that you could tell us some of the upcoming programs that you're offering for teachers and others who might want to become more expert in humane education. Sure. So on April 6th, we are launching a solutionary micro-credential program for teachers. It's a 30-hour program, and it confers a solutionary credential as well as a solutionary badge and for those teachers who want it they can get ceus continuing education units from antioch so we've also made that program accessible to everyone um, through the generosity of a donor if any teachers cannot afford the cost for the program they can choose from subsidized options, including paying nothing at all to complete this program. And people can find out about that at our website, humaneeducation.org. And we have our upcoming deadlines with Antioch for our graduate programs. We have an MAM Ed graduate certificate and EDD program. And the, the deadline for summer enrollment is on May 1st and for fall enrollment is August 15th. And people can find out about that on our website as well. That's so great. Thank you so much for taking this time to talk with us. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much, Zoe. This is Simon. I'm just grateful that you took the time and uh, I can't wait for us to have you back here uh, in the future. Oh, it's just been a pleasure. It is really a joy to work with Antioch, and it's been so much fun talking to both of you.
You can find links to Antioch's Humane Education programs and to the Institute for Humane Education in our show notes. The second edition of Zoe's book, The World Becomes What We Teach, Educating a Generation of Solutionaries, comes out this summer. You can find the first edition on bookshop.org or wherever you buy your books. You can always find our show notes, along with transcripts, links, and prior episodes, by visiting theseedfield.org. The Seedfield podcast is produced by Antioch University. Our editor is Lauren Instanez. Guidance for this episode came from Melissa Badalin, Karen Hamilton, and Melinda Garland. Thank you for spending your time with us today. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you next time. And don't forget to plant a seed, sow a cause, and win a victory for humanity. From Antioch University, this has been the Seedfield Podcast. <music>